Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Gord Cook, president of Building Knowledge Canada and partner at Construction Instruction, is one of the most influential building scientists and building science trainers in North America. He has an extraordinary ability to make complex topics understandable and meaningful for his students and his clients. It was a pleasure to speak with him and to learn more about Canadian versus U.S. construction and how he has helped build successful building consulting firms in both countries. Please enjoy my conversation with Gord Cook. Hello and welcome to the BuildCast. I have the great pleasure of speaking with Gord Cook, who is president of Building Knowledge Canada and a partner at Construction Instruction. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Gord. I really appreciate it. Oh, nice to hear your voice, Robbie. Uh, thanks for including me. I um, wanted to start with uh, understanding how you got to where you are. Uh, I understand that you uh, studied engineering, uh, but what really got you interested in houses and kind of the building science around houses? Well, uh, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I'm a Canadian, as you know, living working in Toronto, Canada. But back in the day, I was working for a government program in uh, Saskatchewan, and uh, some may know that Saskatchewan was one of the places where some of the early research was being done on energy efficient houses. And I happened to meet a small manufacturer in 1984, building something called a heat recovery ventilator. And you and I would know what that is now, and most of your, your listeners would as well, but back in 1984, you can imagine not too many people knew what that was. And um, it was one of the original firms that was designing and building these to solve problems of moisture and air quality and super energy efficient houses and so i joined that company as their production manager and doing some research uh, uh, product development as part of that as well a small little company I, I think it's interesting i think your your listeners might be interested to know at that time in the town of saskatoon saskatchewan a town of about uh would well, have been 150,000 people about that time, university town, there was no less than four manufacturers of HRVs. They had all spun wow. off of research that was being done at the university on, on these energy efficient uh, houses. And so the the company that survived was the company I was with was called Conservation Energy Systems. That's an interesting phrase in itself, right? The idea of the the owner of the company, the founder of that company, a fellow by the name of Rick Olmsted, who recently passed away, Rick's vision was there was electrical energy, there was nuclear energy, and there was conservation energy. And uh, I think that's a, a pretty interesting concept that uh, you know, rather than using it, that every kilowatt, every millions of BTU can save is, is another that can go back into the pool. So that's how I got my start, frankly, was building these devices. And then I moved back to where we were from, which is near Toronto, and I became their sales agent. And you can imagine, if you're trying to sell something called a heat recovery ventilator in 1986, builders would say to me, what do I need that for? And I'd say, because you're building airtight houses. And they would say, am I? I said, I don't know. So I bought a blower door to test houses to see if they were building tight houses. And inevitably, they weren't. So they'd say to me, should I? And I said, I don't know. So I went and got some training, building science training from various folks. And that's how I got interested in building science, frankly, selfishly trying to sell something called a heat yeah. recovery ventilator. And that took me into the realm of building science and found that, um, you know, equally the interest in selling products, but equally interested in helping builders build better houses. So that that's how I got into this. Yeah. So in Canada, they were um, really focusing on building a tight house in 84. Yeah, in fact, there was the phrase that was used and coined by, well, more than one building scientist claimed that came up with this phrase, but build tight, ventilate right. right? This is nothing less than what our partner, Mark Liberté at Construction Instruction would say, is that first things first, if in fact, he would flip it around and say, ventilate right such that you can build tight. And so first thing on the list, ventilate right, now you can build tight. 
And once you've built tight, then you can add insulation. Robbie, you'll know as well as any that if you add insulation in cold climates without making them airtight, well, in any climate, without making them airtight, you run the risk of warm, moist air leaking into cold cavities and having interstitial condensation. So you got to build tight in order to insulate. And if you're going to build tight, then you ventilate. So in uh, build tight and ventilate right. Yeah. Was the uh, heat recovery ventilator that you were developing, is it pretty much the same as what we see today or how, how did it start? It's pretty interesting you say that too. The you know, first generation product was uh, uh, sheets of plywood, four by eight sheets of thin plywood uh, mixed with or uh, integrated with sheets of polyethylene and cross-strapping and little muffin fans like you would see computer fans. And these were, you know, giant boxes and they figured out, ooh, four by eight's tough to get into a basement. So they cut it back to three by seven and wasted a bunch of material. Then they came up with the core materials, either uh, waffle plates of aluminum or in some cases uh, what was called um, uh, this waffle of, of plastic, uh, plastic sheets. These uh, it was actually a signboard material that we now, when you look inside a HRV or ERV, it's a pretty simple device, right? It's two fans in a box with this cross flow, sometimes counter flow, cross flow heat exchange core, a couple of filters to keep the, the core clean, and then typically some damper mechanisms that allow it to turn off or turn into recirc mode. So they do look eerily similar, the ones we designed back in 84, sort of second generation product. Of course, the manufacturers have taken off great manufacturers in the U.S. and sold under the brand name Brome, but in Canada, Venmar, Vanny, tremendous engineering in terms of better fans, quieter fans, more powerful fans, uh, more efficient uh, cores so that they can be smaller. So the equipment's gotten smaller, it's gotten quieter, it's gotten uh, less power consumption of the fans. Some really good stuff there. You've recently seen Panasonic move into the industry with a really nice uh, heat recovery or actually energy recovery ventilator. So another iteration, but inside the box, or if you look at the, the box, it's eerily similar to what was being built in 84, just better versions of it. Yeah. Were they thinking at that point about uh, the ERVs at all, or is it only HRV? Well, I, uh, it's a great point. Again, I, I often lay claim, I don't know if it's entirely accurate, but I because it was Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Again, Rick Olmsted was forward thinking enough. He'd heard of something called an ERV, primarily for southern uh, southern climates, southern moist climates. And he ordered up a core from Japan that would fit the size of our machine. We put it into our HRV, put it into the test lab at the University of Saskatchewan, took it down to minus 17, and it froze up and blew itself apart in a matter of about four or five hours, which kind of validated our thinking at the time. Nobody'd want an ERV. Well, now we realize as time's moved on in climate zones where there's significant amounts of air conditioning, which is pretty much everywhere, and where you have significant amounts of outdoor moisture, which is other than where you are and maybe a few other places in the U.S., outdoor moisture, high humidity levels, then you absolutely want an ERV. And now the manufacturers uh, are building ERV cores that will, assuming they're approved for it, there, there are ratings uh, for them. But uh, ERV cores uh, can work very well in very cold climates, so that you avoid overdrying in winter and avoid bringing in moisture in the summer. So we were thinking of them, but at the time, as Canadians, we were thinking we don't want these. But now we would say throughout Canada and through the vast majority of the United States, ERV is in fact a, a better choice. A simpler, it's actually not a big difference, it's just the core material is a little different, that's able to transfer both heat and moisture, latent moisture. Yeah, humidity, water vapor between the two airstreams. Yeah. So are you continuing to work in the ventilation space uh, today or is it uh, kind of something of the past? Yeah, I would say it, it got linked to indoor air quality and ventilation got linked to um, energy efficient houses. So in the early days, oh, you only need one of those when you're building an airtight house. And what I try to remind builders in the in the building science realm, actually two things were going on uh, around that time, late 70s, early 80s. One, we were building tighter houses, but two, homeowners stopped opening their windows as much as they used to. And so we used to ventilate houses by opening windows. Partly we needed these because 
houses were getting tighter, but mainly we need ventilation in houses because people don't open windows. And you'd say, well, of course they don't open their windows, noise, dust, security, and of course energy. People don't want to open their windows. And yet our building codes were written around the concept of as, as far back as the early 1900s, building codes recognized that buildings should have windows of different orientations in order to create cross drafts and so on. So we need to ventilate. There's no two ways about it. All houses need ventilation. It's not just an energy efficiency um, concern. So when I when you ask, am I still working in the ventilation? I would say they're integrated. You know, if you're if you're building high performance houses that are healthier, safer, more durable, more energy efficient, then ventilation's got to be part of that equation. So they, it's part of the building science conversation. I still like having with folks. I still hear mechanical contractors telling people to turn off their ventilation system. You're an HVAC contractor, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. You can't be telling people to not ventilate their houses. We COVID's a great example of that. The first most important thing you could do during COVID was to ventilate the spaces you were in. And you'll have contractors say, yeah, but it's cold outside or it's hot outside or it's moist outside. I don't care. You need to ventilate your buildings. If you're not going to open your windows, you need ventilation. So the two are inextricably linked. And, and so we just have to go ahead and understand that it's part of building performance. I need to heat in summer, sorry, winter. I need to cool in summer. And I need fresh air all year round. So it's part of the building science conversation, if you will. How do I bring in Minnesota air in the wintertime without freezing people out? How do I bring in Houston air in the summertime without people sweating? I need to do that with mechanical, appropriate mechanical ventilation. Yeah, for sure. Control and predictability of all those things. Um, but you're not um, actually producing or creating them anymore. You're or designing. Oh, yeah. So, and I'm not even designing that. You know, I, I work with some great manufacturers, the Browns, the Panasonics of the world. You know, they're great folks, and they'll call us and ask for advice on on how things should work. And we certainly help builders. How do I? You can imagine now in in the U.S. certain markets aren't that familiar with them, so. Builders are asking for help. How, how do I put these in? How do I integrate these? And how do I make sure they're not annoying and so on? So we certainly help with the the conversation of design and so on. And you know, as I have to challenge mechanical contractors all the time, saying, "Yes, you want to install these. These are good devices." And people say, "Well, uh, some contractors say me, but people turn them off." Well, that's fine. They turn off their heating system too in the summer. They turn off their cooling system in the winter. If they decide they don't want fresh air, that's their decision. But as an HVAC contractor or as a builder, the codes are really clear. You have a responsibility to provide the capacity for continuous mechanical ventilation. So we help with that conversation to make sure. So I'm not actively involved in the manufacturer design of the equipment anymore, but certainly very close to the industry still. Yeah, for sure. I like to say that uh, although the code requires that you have the ability to turn it off, you don't have to make it easy uh, for for the occupant to turn it off. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. uh, that's that's okay. You know, let's let's make it really clear. I, you know, I just find the easiest way to get people to run it. I, I I simply say, and our good friend Sam Rashkin did a bunch of work on this at um, in the Energy Star program and at DOE to say, let, let's stop calling them heat recovery ventilators. That was a term I'm going to attribute it to my my good friend and mentor, Rick Olmsted, who, you know, at, that, at the time we used to call them air-to-air -air heat exchangers or heat exchangers or air changers. And he came up with what he thought was the perfect term, heat recovery ventilator. And it certainly describes technically what it does but it doesn't tell people the value. And I simply turn it around and say, I simply ask homeowners, when would you like fresh air in your home? And they say, well, well, all the time, of course. I said, exactly. So whenever you want fresh air in your home, turn this device on and leave it on whenever you want fresh air. Well, if I'm waiting to cottage for two weeks, I should turn it up. Absolutely, you can turn it off. But if, if I'm coming home tonight, I'd like the house to feel nice and fresh, right? So I should leave it on during the day, absolutely. But isn't that going to cost me a lot in heating and cooling? Not if you're using energy recovery, because you're getting a 70% return on that. So it's so I like what you're saying. Don't make it easy to turn it off. More importantly, I would say education to help people yeah. understand this is just fresh air for you and your family. Yeah. 
So you went from manufacturing to selling, um, and then did you start uh, building Knowledge Canada soon after that, or? So, yeah, soon after that, for a while we did it under the same company, but it, it became a business on its own. Builders would saying, hey, I need help with all of these other building science issues and programs like Energy Star and LEED and Net Zero and Passive and so on. And so we started building knowledge as a way, and we work with about 80 builders, maybe more than that, in, in southern Ontario, greater Toronto area. It has five, 6,000 buildings a year, high-rise, multifamily, all the way down to large customs, just helping builders who want to build better houses. And it's so gratifying. You you will know, Robbie, your years in the building industry. It's a great industry, right? Folks who, what could be better than building houses for families that will last generations? It's, it's really pretty powerful. So I find it extremely rewarding working with builders who simply say, what I'm building now is pretty good, but shouldn't I be doing better or could I be doing better? And um, we're challenging them. They're challenging us to say, what's next? What should I be looking at? Where should I be taking this uh, this conversation to make houses you've heard us use the phrase many times but healthier safer more comfortable more durable and at the same time more energy efficient what could be what could be better than that and that's what we really enjoy doing is helping a builder understand where are you now what we call benchmarking where would you like to be in the next we always say one three and seven years let's optimize the journey we call it optimization let's optimize your approach and think about it can't do everything in year one but what can you get done in year one and what should you get done by year three and what should you get done by year seven? Yeah. Is it, uh, is building knowledge, would it be analogous to a, a typical energy rating company in, in the States or would it be uh, more true building consulting? I, it's, it's, uh, it would be analogous to most energy rating companies. At least that's, you know, I would say half to 60% of what we do. And then because of our, Oh, well, maybe just what we like to do. My partner here, Andy Oding, and I like to do a lot of training and education and consulting. So I guess that's the second revenue stream. But primarily we are what you in Canada, we call them registered energy advisors. In the US, you're energy raters, roughly the same task, the same uh, the same function to help builders move along the energy scale. And But anybody who's out there will know that as you improve energy, you, you also improve health, safety, durability if you do it in the right way. Yeah. And are you working primarily with production builders? Or yeah, a, I would say it's a full range. We work with certainly the largest builders in Canada. There's really no, by your measure in U.S., there's no national builders in Canada. There's a few that build in a few different provinces, but there's none that are would be the same size as, as your large production builders, but um, largest production builders. But we certainly have builders who do thousands of homes a year as an individual builder and then we work with uh, custom builders who are doing two or three years so a full range of um, of size of builders that, that we work with and in Canada there's a lot more multifamily across the country about 60% of what's built in Canada is some form of multifamily from you know townhouses to back-to-back -back stacks to uh, three-story walk-ups to high-rise there's 60% of dwelling units built each year are would you you would put in the uh, multifamily or attached category. So that comes with its own challenges, of course, and and um, so we work in all of those markets. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, coming from my past uh, company to my current company, uh, I'm working a lot more with custom builders than than. Uh, the larger production builders, and I've noticed that on a, on whole, it seems like the production builders are doing a better job than the custom builders. Uh, to me, uh, in my small micro orbit of uh, the Denver metro area, uh, what are you seeing in in uh, Canada? Do you to a large extent, I I have to agree with you. I would say, and it's because um, my sense is. Um, you know the training and education that's now needed it's it's the resources needed are not easily accessible by custom builders they they need help to find the information and they need to commit 
mean, we've often said, and you will know, many of the large production builders have on staff somebody who's responsible for sustainability or building science. Well, difficult for a custom custom builder to have that, and for a custom builder to commit to the time and effort to learn what needs to get learned uh, in order to build high performance houses, it's it, they struggle. So I I would agree with you. I've said it many times myself. The larger production builders in many respects have a better sense of building science. Of course, they have greater risks too. Uh, um, so And they have more to gain in terms of optimization of costs and so on. So yeah. they, they, they're doing excellent. Now, there are some wonderful custom builders who have made that commitment. You will know some of our clients, you know, the Paul Maglebys of the world, Maglebe Construction up in Utah, some great friends of mine, Derek Seaman, Seaman Construction here in Canada. You know, Derek's at every training session that I do, he's just committed himself to staying up to date. And so homeowners ask me all the time, you know, I'm looking for a custom builder, what should I look for? I said, well, one of the things you want to ask him is, how many days last year were you in a classroom learning about building science or buildings, uh, high performance buildings? Because most builders just don't take the time and they tend to get their information from lumber dealers and perhaps manufacturers or, or other trades. And unfortunately, that's too narrow, in my opinion, too narrow a scope. They need to look elsewhere and go, wait a minute, I wonder what I'm missing here. But there are some great manufacturers, don't get me wrong, who provide great training and education. But I, I would say builders need to commit to, well, I, I'll use a number, four days a year. They need to, in addition to all the other things they do, they need three to four days a year in a classroom slash learning experience center, whatever, is that's why you know we have construction instruction is to give builders an opportunity to come down and learn at a deeper level. I just think it's so vital, so important that they commit to ongoing training. So I, I like it as, if I look at you know great custom builders, you go to a state like Minnesota that has continuing education requirements for builders. They tend, the custom builders tend to do a better job because for the last 25 years, they've had to take in the order of two to four days of training a year. It makes them better builders as, as much as it's time consuming. It makes them better builders. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was going to ask you that if uh, that is a requirement in Canada. Is only one province. Most of one I'm sorry. So my apologies. It's only one province, province of, uh, of uh, British Columbia. Who, where magically they've had a lot of building, had a lot of building failures, moisture problems, and no surprise, therefore, that there's now requirements or encouragement for continuing education credits, but uh, not required in other provinces in Canada, at least not to build to code. Yeah, interesting. Um, it sounds like you're doing a fair amount of work in the states uh, through building knowledge as well. Well, actually, everything I do in the U.S. is done through construction instruction, but we often partner with um, with Building Knowledge Canada. So, for example, we did a large um, optimization, energy optimization, with a large national builder in the United States. Some would know Beezer Homes, who have committed to uh, net zero ready construction by 2025, and uh, Building Knowledge did the energy modeling component of that on behalf of construction instruction. So. Yes, we, the, the the work I do in the U.S. is under construction instruction, but in uh, certainly the expertise we have in Canada, we we use in the United States as well. Yeah, is there a building knowledge U.S.? There is actually. I I, I stole the name. I don't think they mind. Uh, good friends of mine, Ed Von Toma and Pat O'Malley in no surprise Minnesota, uh, yeah. Minneapolis specifically. They created that company a number of years ago, and so I. Uh, co-opted their name, Building Knowledge Canada. And I still consider them to be great, uh, well, I'll say colleagues, partners, peers. So I give them a lot of credit for what they do. And, you know, Pat and Ed are two of the finest energy raters in the uh, United States. Uh, but uh, their work is is uh, almost exclusively in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, were you involved in some of these pretty foundational um, Building programs that that we've learned learned a lot from in Canada, like R two thousand, and uh, I think there was another one. Uh, I've got the name of the other one. Uh, uh, and the short answer would be sort of. Uh, by the time the the R two thousand program 
became a program in 1982. It was work that was done at the University of Saskatchewan and a couple other places in the mid 70s. And it was formalized into a technology transfer program. It wasn't a marketing program. They didn't expect a lot of houses to be built, but thousands of builders got trained in the early 80s. The program was, was initialized in 1982. Um, and so that was slightly before my time, right? That was just as uh, I entered the industry in 84. But certainly I did training for that program and supported that, have trained, supported that program for years. Um, and I still meet builders today. We're getting near the end of that cohort who will say to me, you know, I was first R2000 builder. And, and it was a great program. It was a three-day training program, and then it was a mentorship to build the first house. Uh, and it was significantly, it was 50% better than the prevailing code of the day. Uh, and it was, a, it was all based on this wonderful building science that was sponsored by federal government in Canada and then builders who were committed to um, taking on and learning from it. And the interesting part was, they didn't build a lot of them, but every builder who took the training immediately changed the way they built their houses. There's just, the evidence was very, very clear. The minute they showed builders a better way, a, better, a higher performance, and you will know the building industry. Builders want to do it the right way. They just don't necessarily know what that is. But the minute they were um, exposed to it and, and shown it, they changed and it, and it really helped uh, our codes. Uh, it, Folks will know, some folks will know that the, the passive house folks uh, from Germany came over to Canada in 1988 and studied the R2000 program, took many of those concepts back to, to Germany and learned from that and created their program. Much of, as you mentioned, the work that was done in the early days in the United States, the Super Good Sense program, and ultimately the Energy Star program was all came out of, or at least reinforced, I would say, the messages that were developed initially in in Canada from a, a, from a building science perspective, well before we called it building science, of course. Yeah. So um, you spoke about uh, Energy Star. Did the Energy Star, there's Energy Star Canada and Energy Star US. Are they the same program or are they uh, slightly different? Slightly different. It's basically, they are true to the promise of the Energy Center program in the US, as you will know, DOE, uh, sorry, EPA had said Energy Star will be 20% better, nominally 20% better than the prevailing code of, of the region you're in. And that was the promise that Canada made. So we actually took the Energy Star name and brought it back to Canada. A great fellow who's passed away, Bruce Goff, who was one of the fundamental building science researchers here in Canada. He was very active in the R2000 program, but like many others, felt R2000 was just a little too, oh, I would say administratively heavy for production builders to do. And he was the one who said, you know, why don't we bring the Energy Star program to Canada? It's a little simpler version of R2000, a little, let's call it R2000 light. And it was a very forward thinking of Bruce. And he wrote the research papers, uh, help the federal government in Canada negotiate with EPA to say, yes, we would like to use the Energy Star name, but we'll do it in a Canadian way. Same principles apply, you know, more insulation, air tightness, proper ventilation, all very similar performance metrics uh, or ideals. So, you know, roughly 15 to 20% better than the prevailing code in whatever province they're building in. So uh, not exactly the same program, but analogous to. Yeah. In the same light, uh, how is Passive House uh, being implemented in Canada? Uh, we're seeing, well, we obviously see uh, Passive House Institute US, that is kind of customized um, Passive House Institute for the US market and climate zones and whatnot, but it's also creating some confusion uh, between, uh, between the, the US version and the, and the European version. Uh, have you guys customized Passive House for Canada? There is a Passive House Canada group, or uh, Passive House Canada. They don't have their own specs. Um, in Canada, we see the Passive House US specs. We see the Passive House German German specs, and then we and the Canadian team, the Canadian Passive House, as far as I know, would subscribe to and say we should really follow the rules 
uh, out of the original program. Although, as I say, the, the FIAS or PASFOS US uh, specs are used here as well. So I, I would agree with you. It creates a little bit of confusion. You and I would be strong supporters of the ideals of passive house. I, I find sometimes find the the um, that that little bit of confusion non-productive, but uh, but still a great ideal. It certainly easier. I like to remind folks that you know there's 28 uh, German cities listed in ASHRAE data um, for weather data. Not one of them is cold as our mildest city. Sorry, only one of them is cold as one of the mildest cities here in Canada, which is Windsor, Ontario. So much tougher to do passive house in Edmonton, Alberta at minus 30 than it is to do in, in Germany or in the US. So um, builders here wanting to do, or homeowners and architects wanting to do passive house find it incredibly rigorous. Uh, obviously, that nothing wrong with that. It's a great thing. But um, it's it's not easy to meet the the, those metrics, the passive house metrics in a Canadian, in the Northern Canadian context. Yeah. So you have all these programs out there. What's the direction of the market? Is it towards zero energy homes, uh, passive house homes, or just homes that are more generally more efficient and comfortable? Uh, it's a great uh, ideal that, that you speak of. So Energy Star's done very well in certain parts of the province. I'll say it this way, I'll encourage energy raters. Um, when energy raters promote Energy Star, builders tend to build it. When energy raters tend not to promote it or think it's too difficult, builders magically think it's too difficult. So energy raters listening to this call, promote the heck out of these programs. Builders are intrigued and interested, and that's been proven here in Canada. Where there's strong proponents of Energy Star, it does very well. More importantly, I would say Energy Star has done a great job of showing what's possible. So specifically here in the province of Ontario, the largest, most populous province, um, Energy Star has done well, and therefore the building code folks are able to look and say, well, if 25% of builders are already doing this, why couldn't we make it code? And so codes moved along quite nicely, exactly the way we had hoped, right? You, you set up a, a voluntary standard, people get used to that, make it doable, make it practical, and then codes can move along. What's most exciting, I would say, in Canada is our newest, our National Building Code of Canada, the NBC 2020, has been published, and it lays out very clear steps. It's it's called a tiered code. No surprise, uh, similar to, to other places, but there's five steps that lead towards, ultimately, uh, net zero, we call it net zero ready construction by the year 2030, and higher levels yet, close to past foes levels beyond that. So these very clear steps uh, over the next 10 to 15 years that encourages and shows builders that it's not a question of if you're going to be doing this, it's a question of when. And I was very proud of our Canadian Home Builders Association, the National Association, similar to NHB, um, that stepped up a few years ago and actually created a labeling program for net zero and net zero ready. They stepped up and said, look, if this is coming, one, it should be a voluntary program, at least for now, and two, we should take control of the definition so that people have a clear sense of what it is and what it does. So they sent this really nice, I would say, straightforward definition that says, houses shall be designed, modeled, and constructed. Three interesting words, right? Designed, modeled, and constructed to you only use as much energy as they're able to produce themselves on average over the course of a year. So that was very helpful to the industry to say, okay, that I can understand that, that's doable. We know that solar panels in winter in, in Ottawa, Canada or in Edmonton, you know, we don't get a lot of sunlight hours, so it's gonna be tough to generate that. But on average over the course of the year, because we get lots of sunlight hours in the summer, could we create a house that was net zero, if you will? And so, that's been very useful. We have, uh, in our own world, I said to you earlier, we have about 80 builders or more doing that we work with, and 25 to 30 of those are now nicely doing net zero ready or net zero houses, not fully on a production scale, although some of them are at production level now, but they're all working towards it, understanding that three years from now, gonna be doing this anyway, or five or seven, I might as well get started at it. So that it would be the trend. Uh, 
it won't encode be called net zero ready because that's a proprietary program by CHPA. But to, it, the energy goals are similar and they're roughly uh, 50 to 70% reduction between now and 2022 and 2035, let's say. The trend, or at least the goal, is to be 50 to 70% reduction in space heating and domestic hot water use in Canadian houses. Yeah. So the code, I'm a little confused because it sounds like uh, it's voluntary now, but at, at some point it will be actually a code requirement. That's right. So they've set out the five tiers and they've said to municipalities, pick a tier that you want to go to or the provinces, pick a tier. And so some provinces will say, okay, we're going to start at tier two or tier three and move up from there. And then the, the concept is every time the code is republished, they'll remove one tier. So you're moving up a tier every five years. And it's all laid out. So they know what tier, the next tier, where it's going and it's already laid out. They're not changing that. Right, and that's the beauty, right? It's all normalized now. I think it's very helpful to the industry. We've yes. seen this in other places. If, as long as I know where I'm going, we, we hear this every day from builders. Okay, if I've got land that's coming seven years from now, which one of these tiers am I likely to be on? Okay, I'm going to put that into my my planning, into my designs, into the thickness of walls, and so on. I need my cost basis, and knowing that the cost will probably get reduced, but at least I have a sense. So I think it's a one, I'm very proud of CHBA for doing that. Um, Energy Star enabled it, CHBA picked up on it, and now we have a very, I feel, very clear path forward for our building industry. Yeah. Are the codes uh, nationalized there, or, or is it province by province or municipality by municipality? Similar to the US, you know, the ICC, we would we call it a model national code. So it's developed at the national level uh, by a, a wide variety of stakeholders, committees, and so on. And then it's up to the individual provinces to adopt. So up until recently, uh, seven out of the 10 provinces adopted national building code. Three provinces had their own. Now all provinces have committed to uh, uh, having using the national building code as of 2024. There'll be one Everybody will adopt one of the tiers of, or one of the versions, if you will, of the national building code. They're still allowed to make minor modifications, but they'll really use as the basis of their design the national building code again. Very useful, you can imagine, to manufacturers and others who are, boy, had to build one product for Ontario, a different product for, for, um, for British Columbia. So nice of them. Uh, we feel it's like, a, you know, there's be some angst over the changeover definitely be some angst. Builders are looking at it right now going, what does this mean in a province that's not currently using it? But it's a, it's a comprehensive code with this energy section built into it. It's not unlike IECC, IRC, and IECC. The, it's, both are built into the code, into one, one version of the code. So under the what's called the National Building Code of Canada has an energy section within it. Okay, yeah, I was wondering about that. So you're saying, uh, like the US's IRC and IECC, they've been combined uh, in the Canadian code? Essentially, yes. And just to confuse your listeners a little more, there is what's called the Model National Energy Code, the okay. uh, uh, NECB uh, Building Code of Canada, but the National Building Code of Canada has a specific section in it that is picked out and put in energy requirements. So a builder only needs one book, if you will, um, or uh, to, to build a house that meets both the energy requirements, the safety health requirements are all built into one document. Yeah, My, I'm guessing that it's a little bit more consistent. Uh, for example, in, in the state's code, there, you know, things that I like to call, I guess, uh, the energy code kind of this gateway drug to all the other performance issues of the house. Mm. Uh, so you've got you've got uh, all these moisture issues that are created by the energy code, but all the vapor retarder and moisture management stuff is is in IRC. So there's there's this disconnect there, and it seems like uh, your the Canadian process uh, might smooth out some of those disconnects. We'd like to think that there is there is angst still. Uh, there's work being done because of the integration of these two codes. There's a tremendous amount of work being done by great 
wonderful volunteers, committees, uh, uh, builders, and so on, looking at that term unintended consequences. Okay, what if, as we move along these various tiers, what's this going to mean? But for example, you know, the, the ventilation section of the code is right next to the energy section of the code. So the two are nicely intertwined and, and pretty thoughtful. So I, I'm pretty proud of the Canadian uh, codes that they are, uh, I would say, respectful of building science, understanding the consequences of making measures without having to refer too much, but without too much back and forth. And because there's a, a pretty good building science, well, there's a very good building science community, both on a, a private level and a governmental level, both nationally and provincially, uh, I feel like we're pretty well served, but it does take, it does take some thought. What, what does clause 932 do to clause 936 on the energy side? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um... Is is construction generally the same practice in in Canada as in the U.S.? I mean, uh, I'm guessing it, they're primarily stick-built houses, uh, primarily insulated the same ways, primarily detailed the same ways. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, you know, certainly, wood frame construction is prevalent at least up to five stories. Now we're doing some mass timber, higher levels than that, but. Uh, so, and we still see the insulated concrete forms are used in roughly the same proportion as they are in the U.S. Uh, we're seeing some manufactured housing, less manufactured housing probably in Canada per capita or per housing unit than in the U.S. But generally speaking, the designs, you know, obviously we're, a, I shouldn't say obviously, but your listeners should know we're primarily a basement market. We need to get below frost lines and our frost lines sort of start at the four foot, there's not too many places. Well, there's basically one place in Canada where frost lines are, are less than four foot. So we tend to be concrete basins, poured in place concrete basements generally, and then wood frames, stick frame construction above that. Um, we are a little ahead of you on um, insulated sheathing and we're significantly behind you on uh, water resistant barriers. We don't do as good a job. We have a little more drying potential we do a lot of brick claddings in many parts of the country, which are incredibly forgiving. So I, when I travel the U.S., I'm very pleased to see how, in general, you guys are doing a better job. Great products like Tyvek and system approach, uh, mostly a systems approach. Forget the yeah. brand name, it's the systems approach to uh, water resistance. In Canada, we're still a little bit, I would say, naive on that. Um, our air, bar air barriers, we tend to do from the inside. We have a long history of polyethylene vapor barriers, which transition nicely into being an air barrier, whereas you would see more products like Tyvek and so on used on the outside as the both the weather barrier, water barrier, and the air barrier. But other than that, very similar, you know, appliances, uh, you know, gas gas-fired heating, uh, and uh, uh, you know, air conditioning systems all made in the U.S., all brought to Canada, basically. So very similar. All houses in Canada now, effectively, it's not specific, it's not technically a code requirement, but effectively all houses in Canada for the last three or four years have had have heat recovery ventilation systems in them, so defined ventilation. So that might be a difference, folks, would there's an added box in our houses that you might not see in all houses in the U.S. You'd see it, obviously, in the northern states, but not so much in the in the Midwest, for example. Yeah. In general, do you think that uh, Canadian builders and uh, U.S. builders are performing roughly the same, or is one market doing better? Well, here's the way I like to put it: If we took the best building practices from across North America, we'd have ourselves one heck of a house. You know, the the West Coast does a phenomenal job of water-resistant barriers. But frankly, they do a terrible job of, not a terrible, that's the wrong word. They could do a better job of crawl spaces because they still do open crawl spaces. Here in Ontario, we figured out basements a number of years ago. We've done a nice job of basements, but Minnesota does an even better job of basements than we do here in Canada. So we do ventilation better. We do air tightness better in most parts of Canada. I was just in Edmonton, Alberta, a market that builds you know, thousands of houses a year. There's not one production builder that's over two air changes per hour. They've all figured out how to get under one and a half air changes per hour at a production level. It's it's pretty phenomenal. And um, 
Why? Because it's a very cold climate. And if, if you let warm, moist air get into a cavity in Edmonton, you're going to have moisture problems. So we'd see a really nice uh, ability. So some places do a better job of windows than others. So I think it's less about Canada versus the U.S. and it's more about the amazing regionality. I, this is what I find fascinating. It's it's an amazingly regional business where, and not significantly different. Oh, wood frame, wood frame, but still little odd things that are done differently and in different markets. It's it's kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, that's true. The um, one of the things we see is that the increased cost of construction is often put on the back of energy and energy codes um, with, without kind of thinking about, especially in, in current day uh, impacts of COVID and supply chain issues and labor issues and whatnot. Um, are you seeing that in Canada as well? Um, if, if what you're saying is um, builders tend to balk at energy efficiency requirements because it's going to increase the cost of construction, yeah. the the answer is is yes and uh, they they feel like they need to show some sort of payback for anything that's labeled as energy efficient they need to show some sort of payback to it uh, and of course the price of natural gas has been cheap enough that's sometimes difficult to do whereas you know you and i would say well if you're building a good house that's quiet safe healthy durable you're probably going to want more airtight construction and so on. So don't see it as an energy thing. See, see it as a improving the performance of houses and not saddling it with, uh, with this energy conservation uh, or energy label, and therefore wanting to see some sort of payback. And so I would say that's fairly common. Yeah. Going back to your your statement about air tightness and kind of the average uh, being in that two range, uh, I think we're seeing kind of the average air tightness in the uh, 2.5 range, at least here in the front range of Colorado. Um, are, it sounds like most of the builders are achieving that without uh, the aero barrier type uh, techniques. And I, I know that Building Knowledge uh, has recently purchased a franchise, an aero barrier franchise. Uh, can you describe why you guys went that route? instead of using more traditional techniques for air sealing? Well, I should clarify and not to um, dismiss what you've said, but it, building knowledge did not buy okay. an AeroBear franchise. We encouraged, you know, I, I saw that AeroBear technology, again, my my good friends, uh, Ed and Pat in Minnesota, Building Knowledge US, uh, they were doing some research, said, Gord, you gotta some, come see this technology. And I saw it and I went, wow, that's an amazing technology. So I. I spoke to the folks at AeroBear and I said, look, if you're coming to Canada, I want to help you with that. Um, and they agreed. And so we helped facilitate, Building Knowledge helped facilitate development of AeroBear uh, business in Canada. So I'm a strong proponent of, proponent of it. Certainly you've got that correct. And, and here's the reason for that. As I mentioned, I've been doing blow door testing since about 1987. And when I see the angst on a builder's face, of am I going to pass? Am I going to pass? Um, and understanding that it's one thing to get a house to three or 2.5 or two, but if I really want to be on a consistent level under one and a half, one to one and a half, it's a lot of extra time, uh, not materials necessarily, because materials don't cost a lot, a lot of extra time and angst uh, and perhaps expertise uh, for builders to pull that off and to not know until the house is built whether they pulled it off or not. So I saw AeroBear as a tremendous technology just to say, with one phone call, you no, no longer have to worry about this stuff. The Pazvos folks are a great example of this. They they like, I find, I'm joking a little bit, but some would say they don't, but they, they kind of like the idea that it's difficult to get a house to 0.6. They want to take those extra two weeks or whatever, whatever it is to caulk, seal, and put double layers of beads of caulking and so on. And, my builders would say, boy, that's that's a lot of work and still a lot of uncertainty. Isn't there a better way? So I see the arrow barrier as a way to get there. Those builders who are already there, they've been doing it for a lot of years and they may not be good candidates for air barrier. They might say, well, I'm already there. Or they may say, boy, if air barrier can do that and I don't need to send a, a laborer out for three days before the blower test is being done, maybe I'll do that. 
So I think Arrowbear is is just one of those ways to make things simpler, right? It's the if we could use all kinds of analogy in industry that when a better tool comes along, let's adjust to that tool. Even if you were able to do it without that tool, this is maybe a better tool. And I just see arrow barrier as a better tool in the toolbox with greater consistency, greater greater certainty of your results. So that's why I advocate it as, as a building scientist at Building Knowledge Canada, I would refer, still would refer builders to arrow barrier to say, here's a technology, you gotta look at it. And I'll challenge it this way. I, I say to builders, in fact, I say to building consultants and energy advisors, the energy raters, what if every builder could be under one and a half, one or one and a half air changes? What would change? Oh my goodness, lots of things would change. You you get to imagine that, wow, now I can go ahead and add insulation and not have to worry about interstitial condensation. Now I can take the energy gains um, and understand what that means to the rest of my building materials. Maybe I don't need inch and a half of insulated sheathing in some markets. Maybe it's only one inch. And now in multifamily, I don't have the noise complaints and the odor complaints between suites. So I just see arrow barrier as a better tool, if you will. And that's why we would advocate it. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I still think that the, the idea of thinking of the air barrier system as an assembly and your primary air barrier on the outside as your, in essence, your sheathing, your primary air barrier on the inside, your drywall, or if you could get a, a good um, smart membrane for vapor retarder and air tightness on the inside. Um, basically thinking of it as an assembly though, makes a lot of sense because the aero barrier, like you said, is all done from the inside. And uh, you, you may or may not have uh, contain the holes to the outside uh, of the assembly. Sure, and and I would agree with you. It, what I find interesting, people say, well, aero barrier is your air barrier. Actually, no, it isn't. You, you, you already make your house uh, houses out of air barriers. That's things like Tyvek and OSB and sheetrock or drywall, if you want to call it that, and concrete and wood. Those are your air barriers. The problem with air barriers is how do I connect them? And yes. in the building process, there's all these connection points that are really difficult to get at. And I have to involve multiple trades in order to get them at multiple times in construction. And yet I don't know if I've achieved until frankly, after the house is drywalled and late in the construction process, that's a little bit stressful. So the we, we've we heard from building departments, well, air barrier, it's like you're cheating. It's like you're not building a good envelope. No, 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 nothing could be further from the truth. You still have to build a good air barrier. They have the air barrier materials, whatever your air barrier is, collection material it is, drywall on the ceiling, Tyvek on the outside, concrete in the foundation, whatever your air air barrier is, you still have to do that really well. What aero barrier does is takes away the conduct the the connection uh, uh, risk, if you will, and the, the angst over did I get the connections correct. So that we see it as a great synergy. One of the first projects larger projects we did 38 net zero houses here for a great builder uh, Minto Homes here in Toronto it was a difficult site it was an urban infill site so difficult to get to and difficult to get trades in and out and so on and and when we first started doing their houses net zero air tightness was a, a big stress point for them the minute we went to aero barrier that angst went away but more importantly as they applied aero barrier they realized it's because it's quite a demonstrative pro process, you see what's happening. The builder went, oh, that's a big hole. I could, the next house I could fix that, that's my framer, oh. So two things happened. Their houses over the 38 started out at an average of three and a half to four before aero barrier. And by the time we were done in the 38, their average air tightening was two to two and a half, which, and that, which meant aero barrier could take them even further down the line and at lower cost and quicker to do. So it was a really nice synergistic effect of being able to demonstrate to builders, one, the difficulty of air bearers, uh, how to do them, and two, how working together and simplifying and understanding it as a, as a system, the connections is really what's important. So yeah. it, it's demonstrative in that way. Yeah, I think we're on the same point is that your last point that it's a system and I think one of the 
The only downside of this idea of the, of the red line test is that people think the air barrier is one component, one plane right. of the assembly there, where it's really this integrated system that's that's creating it, that that tightness from my perspective. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That that you know, it's a good thing to say draw the red dotted line, and then, but it's also a difficult thing because the architect goes there. My job's done. Yeah, but you didn't think about at the little shed roof, and you didn't think about at the house to garage connection, and oh right. So yeah, it's it's understanding exactly, and you probably do the same as we. We we often ask builders out on site. What's your primary air barrier? And they have to think about it a little bit. Is it the poly? Is it the sheetrock? Is it the is it the OSB? Is it the uh, water resistant barrier? What exactly is your air barrier in this house? And then they start to realize, well, it's multiples exactly. And how are you connecting those? Oh, hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I wanted to um, kind of end our conversation um, talking about the. Uh, impact of COVID on your, I mean, I know that you weren't able to uh, cross the border uh, and we weren't able to cross the border uh, back and right. forth. Have there ever, uh, now that the border is open, are there any kind of long, long impacts uh, remaining of, of the COVID uh, with regards to construction in Canada? Uh, well, I think it has, uh, as I'm sure you found, it, it, it has been good in some respects, right? It's had people understand that um, houses, I'll say from a construction standpoint, it's yet another reason for builders to build high performance houses. That's been highlighted. People spent more time indoors, started to realize about the performance of their buildings. That put some angst on builders and homeowners, but at the same time showed home builders that, geez, there's, there's more that I could do. There's more that I can highlight, especially high performance builders to say, my houses actually do work better, and I think that's going to have a lasting effect. Um, second, from an industry perspective, it did allow us to realize not everything has to be done in person. We can do some things remotely, and I probably do have some time as a builder to do online training. We find more people, builders, for example, taking maybe the last two hours of the day to sit in a webinar. Uh, at Construction Instruction and at Building Knowledge, we'll often do a webinar and 200 people will sign up, but only 100 actually attend on the day. But then as we watch that evening or that weekend, um, we watch the other 100 that listen in and we feel really good about that. So so I think it's shown that, that we have an appetite for better education, better training, and, and that we have different forms, different methods in order to do that training. So there, I would say, I always like to stay on the positive side. There's two good positive things have come out about the, you know, I would say the process changes that happened because of the highlighting of uh, of that pandemic. I would I would completely agree with that. Uh, are you seeing the same supply chain issues in the construction industry uh, as a result of COVID that we're seeing in in the states here? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we yeah. are. You know, we're we're an we're a continental market for sure. Yeah. With you guys, we're same supply issues definitely. Interesting. Don't come looking for our framers. We don't have any. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or your sheathing or your. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Great. Well, Gordon, you know, I always learn something. Uh, you are such a great uh, conversationalist and, and educator and building scientist for our industry, representative for our industry. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, it was a great pleasure to speak with you. Uh, you're too kind, Robbie. I've, I've always enjoyed our relationship too. And, you know, the sharing of knowledge is always important to us. We all learn. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website www.btankinc.com Thank you Ben Sound for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it and you for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify or your favorite platform If you enjoyed our show and are willing please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast which will help others find it more easily Thanks again for listening 
and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.